You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. When we first start doing yoga, many of us start for the physical aspects, but we end up staying for the mental health benefits. Hello, yoga teacher. I'm excited to invite you today to listen to a dynamic and wide-reaching conversation centered around how we as yoga teachers can use our classes to support the mental health of our students. My guest, Maria Kirsten, is originally from New York City, but she's taught yoga in northern New South Wales, Australia for 20 years. She's a yoga therapist, an occupational therapist, a yoga teacher, and a teacher trainer, and she specializes in making yoga accessible for students of all ages and levels of experience and ability. She uses her understanding of anatomy and functional movement to empower and educate students to modify and individualize their yoga. She's also the co-host of the Live Like You Love Yourself podcast with Shara Carruthers, who was my guest on this podcast just a couple weeks ago. Maria is incredibly wise, knowledgeable, and dynamic in her thinking. We had such a great time talking that this interview ended up running a little longer than I usually shoot for, but there was just too much good stuff to cut it down. So with that in mind, I'll keep the intro really brief and let's jump right into the conversation. Maria, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thank you, Madam. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, and it's so awesome to get to chat with people from absolute other side of the world. You are in Australia. I'm in Australia and very close to the most eastern point. That helps people. I always say it's like if you look at the east coast, it's like a belly and we sit just at the belly button. <laughs> awesome. And so you're here to talk today about yoga for mental health, which is such an important topic. Yeah. And I'd love to know what drew you to this area of study. Yes, I, I didn't think that that was going to be where I headed. In fact, I, I, would have, I would have said to you prior to studying occupational therapy that, that that was the last thing I wanted to do. And I think mainly out of fear and out of kind of an othering. And, but it was interesting during, I studied occupational therapy, maybe because I couldn't work out whether I should study yoga therapy. And I wanted to be taken seriously by the major medical systems. <laughs> so I, I did that. And then this woman said, I think you should do a mental health placement. And I was like, oh, no, no, you know, I'm so physical. I love anatomy. I love, you know, yoga for older people. And, and then I did, I sort of took it in and sunk it in and thought, You're, it's right. Yoga is about the mind and it could be really value added. And why are you so afraid? And I found it amazing. I was really scared going into a mental health unit. And then you go in there and you're like, okay, it's really hard to tell who are the patients and who are the people who work here. <laughs> it's like, this just looks like everybody else. I mean, to, you know, within reason, people are in a fair degree of crisis, but the imagination of Bedlam. And I thought, wow, we are all doing this on a daily basis, just like we're managing our physical health. And anyone who thinks that your mental health you get for free, like we know we have to exercise, we have to eat well, we have to sleep well, we get that. 
but I think we get really disappointed when mental health doesn't come for free or we feel you know, a little blue or a little anxious and we think what's wrong with me or why is nobody taking care of this for me? So I just got fired up about it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you touched on the stigma because one of the things that really struck me as you were talking is this realization that we all struggle with mental health. Like that nobody's normal. This whole idea of normal doesn't exist, right? But so we walk through the world thinking, well, I'm the only one who's not normal, or there's only a few of us who aren't normal and everybody else is normal. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. And it's that isolation that is the suffering. I mean, that's what they, that's the yogic premise, isn't it? It's when you know your okayness and everyone else's okayness or unnormalness that you can go, all right, I'm okay. But the minute something happens, we think it's just me. And that's very teenage angst. Nobody understands me. You know, it's all so tragic, but but that idea that everyone else has the best marriage or the best friendships or the best mental health. Mm -mm. And in some ways it's helped through social media in some ways it's exacerbated, right? Because we do have the chance to be vulnerable on social media and to share about our struggles in a way that there wasn't a platform for doing before. Mm -hmm. Yet there is also a lot of expectations around putting your best side forward on social media. What's been your experience with social media? So I'm, I'm 54. So I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm slow at the whole thing basically. And I, and I actually am slow at it because I find it makes me feel kind of seedy and a little bit yucky. Mm. So I go through Facebook and it, it feels like, Sometimes I love the joyful things. I love the things that connect. And hopefully I'm feeding my algorithm with things that say, please feed me happy stuff, which is scary in itself. Um, but that soiled feeling has left me kind of keeping it at a distance. So I post stuff. I've used Facebook just to post things that I think are interesting to share with people that are mainly teacher trainers. So I don't even use it as a personal thing. And I hardly ever post about myself personally or my family because I have that sense of, not best foot forward, but I don't know who anybody is. And I am not comfortable with internet intimacy. Like I've gotten to know you over it, but we're, we're sitting face to face. You know, we're having a, a relationship, not a kind of post relationship. So, and then, I mean, Instagram is there, but these great declarations that people make, I sometimes get scared of too. So the best face forward, I don't believe. I, I think that's nice. But I, I see that as the best face forward. I know that there are times when it's not there. So I'm, I'm not kidding myself. I just think that that's a veneer that people are showing. And it's nice to see a nice side of people. What scares me is when people have these great unleashings of these great vulnerabilities. And they're like, oh, and it's all happened and it all blows apart. And it's like, who are you telling this to? And I, I mean, you're telling it to me and I'm not your good friend. It feels very, very vulnerable without the containment of, of safety. And I wish that I could offer real connection there rather than to hold these confessions or these unleashings rather than a kind of spray into the internet feed. Mm. I'm not sure if I answered that question, but it, it makes me nervous in terms of connection. Yeah. Well, mm. one of the things that I've noticed is that somebody's mental health break becomes really clear on social media when there's somebody who posts regularly. There yeah. are people who I never would have really known 
that they have a very serious mental health issue, except for what they post on social media, right? Like my running into them at the grocery store, I wouldn't know, you know, even being a coworker, I probably wouldn't know, but Mm -hmm. the lack of filter, I think is what it is, is, is the people who are posting consistently, not that they lost their filter once, but mm. where it's like, oh my gosh, again, again, again. Yeah. Oh gosh, you're a train wreck. Oh my God, I can't watch this. <laughs> no, when you want to reach out, you just want to go, oh, sweetheart, you just, you know, go and find a human to connect with face to face. Do your social, I don't know if you're familiar with the, you know, polyvagal theory and all that. It's, it's that idea of find a human, find someone, find another baboon, as Robert Sapolsky would say, and pick the nits out of their hair. You know, just like right. connect in a way that is real and quiet. And because I think I've known that, I can't remember what, it, Johan Hari wrote that book, Lost Connections, about depression and, and talking about um, that it's really about losing connection. And I, mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think you see those those breaks and think you're wanting so badly to connect, but it is inherently unsatisfying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I gather that the yoga for mental health work that you do is more about relationship and maybe relationship to self as well. Very much so. So it's the, I designed the course for teachers mainly because I had all these ideas about, I'd already been into kind of reading about trauma and about using the body. And so that was a set of things I went to and I had really ideas of what worked with my middle-class, actually very white where I live audience and doing some interoception and bringing them into their bodies and all of that stuff seemed to be very effective from what they were telling me and what I could see in a mental health unit where there is that degree of trauma and crisis to say to someone, Oh, just let's come into our bodies was not a safe, easy thing to do without, without having developed relationships. And what I did, what I realized is you, you read, if you look on the internet, you go yoga anxiety, you'll get the six best poses for this and the 10 best. If I see one more of those articles, my head will blow off. But And you look at the poses and you think, why are those even for anxiety? But anyway, (laughs) um, but there are so many techniques. And yes, maybe some work with some people and maybe some don't with some people. But who offered them to that person? And and the value of that relationship and the safety and the trust in that relationship is a a huge part of it. And and I'm not saying you can't get that over the internet or through a program, um, but there has to be some way that you feel very safe. And then you try it and it's effective or you reject it and the person goes, great, let's try something else. That's no problem that you didn't like that. I don't like that either. I like this one. And so you realize, hey, everybody's very different, very idiosyncratic in what they like and what works for them. But it's, let's do this together and figure out, let's co-create what'll work for you. So the big work there wasn't to offer lots of techniques. It was to be a consistent, calmed down human. So most of the work that I did, I mean, I was doing occupational therapy, so I was, I, there, was, there was work to do as a health professional. But the days when I didn't practice or when I hadn't kind of got my act together, whatever was happening at home was a bit intense. So I hadn't really got into myself. I could feel the resonance with the people that I was working with was totally different. And the days when I had my act together and I, I was embodied, were completely different. 
So my vibration was creating safety so that things were cool and possible. Didn't mean everything works. There's no, you know, things don't fix it immediately. But it was a really powerful effect. So yes, when you're talking about relationships, I want to talk about a lot of the techniques for teachers. And it's not, you're going to be, these people don't come out of my course being a trauma-informed teacher and anything teacher. They've just understand maybe this neuroscience or the neurobiology of mental health. And, and I've got a kind of section that's why mental health ain't easy <laughs> mm-hmm. because there's a lot of wiring in us. And if you understand it, then you go, Oh, okay. I'm not taking this personally and I'm not criticizing myself for it, for it not being easy. But that's so much about being a yoga teacher is about doing the work with yourself, accepting your own stuff and then being able to then sit and hold presence for other people. And non, if they reject it, it's like, okay, well, today you're not, you're not ready or, you know, it didn't work for you. It's not about me. I didn't save you or I didn't, you know, it's, it's you take the ego a bit out of it. Mm. So, so within this context of we, mental health is hard, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this, this is hard and we're wired to struggle a little bit here and we're all struggling a little bit here. What mm-hmm. is the definition of mental health and what are we trying to create? What's, what's the goal? I mean, one big sign of it, which is scary, which is hard if you're lonely. So I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say it, but one big sign that things are going well is that you can actually have at least one pretty good relationship. If you've got someone to connect to and talk to, that's, it's a sign that you're able to. Now that's hard if you're already there where you don't or life circumstances have put you there. So I don't want anyone who feels alone to do that, but being able to have reciprocity in relationships and to initiate, you know, I'm going to call this person or I'm going to do something or I'm going to not what I think we do, or I know what I do when I'm not well is to kind of huddle alone at home and forget that I've got wonderful people that I can call and to feel really alone. So I've got even got a list of people sometimes when I, that I am like, I can call all these people and go for a walk with them and they'll be happy to. And they, anytime, but I, we can forget that. So relationships are important. And then I think, I think you know you're well when you've got a tiny bit of space between what comes at you and what you feel. And so I love that Viktor Frankl, although I've looked up and it's apparently not Viktor Frankl, but it's, it's anonymous, but still, I'll still attribute it to him, where you have space between stimulus and response. Because this feeling, and that's sort of the trauma picture is, things are hitting you so fast and you're reacting so fast that you're on some kind of wild cowboy ride that you have you don't have control over. And then you get self-doubt and get this reactivity and this reinforcement. Whereas if things can just calm down for a second and you can have something that you go, I'm just gonna make some space, there's a feeling of control and also a feeling of, not, I don't mean white knuckled control, but a feeling of space. And a feeling of, ooh, I did that. I just made something I often, uh, a psychologist I worked with, he was explaining to a patient and he put a clipboard right up next to his face and he said, when you're, when you're feeling trouble, it was literally touching his nose. You can't see anything but the problem. And if you can just move it back, uh, I'll use inches, <laughs> six inches or 10 centimeters, it's still there. 
It's very much in your field of vision. The problem still exists, but you are able to see the world around it a little bit and put some context in it. And so I liked that image also of space. I love that. And also that recognition that we were kind of talking about earlier that we're probably all going to have moments where there isn't space between stimulus and response, but yeah. maybe, and this is a question for you, we're yeah. looking for more times in our lives where there is space and that when it doesn't happen, it's an anomaly versus it's an anomaly when there's space. That's right. So here's another thing that I think is really important. Yoga is great for mental health if you know yoga. If I come at you and you're having a mental health crisis, so you've woken up this morning and you are uncomfortable in your body, you're agitated, you're whatever you are, or, or very depressed, and I get in your face and I'm like, I'd love to teach you some yoga techniques because I see you don't feel well. You could punch me in the nose, <laughs> could be one response. You are probably not in a position where you can relate to me. So how can I teach you or offer you something when you can't relate? So you, you yoga a lot, and I, this is why I want to teach teachers rather than therapists, because we have people in our classes, we are loading people up. And I use the, I use the analogy of, um, you know those days when you're, the world is going crazy, and you, I know you have children, so you know those days, and you think, what is in the freezer that I can pull out for dinner? Well, you pre-cooked you pre it, babe. You have it in the freezer. You prepared this earlier. And if you've been doing your Nishadana or your square breathing or your five things you can see and four things you can touch, those exercises with a teacher regularly in a positive environment, we can pull those out because you have them on tap. To learn a new thing requires a lot of cortex, neocortex, that is not available when you're in crisis. So we've got to preload this stuff so that when you're having a really, what I call kind of your first aid days, you've got some first aid techniques that'll do it. And they often don't look like yoga. For people with anxiety, it often looks like running, upping their metabolic rate to, to their breathing rate mm -hmm. and then coming in for a landing. Yeah, I mm. think that's a really important point that the yoga is not necessarily for the moment of crisis. The yoga is feeding the bank or putting, you know, putting deposits into the bank so that you have more resilience when crisis happens. Yeah. And the other thing I, the other thing I teach is of course on um, healthy aging or, and the same thing you can't just, when you're 80 and you had a fall, you learn yoga, but if you've been learning how to find your feet and find your balance and your strength and do things, then when you do have an inevitable flu or um, fall, your recovery is so much better. You're, you're so able to know where your body is, to know what you could do, to have practiced some things. So it, it preloads a lot of skills and a lot of embodiment skills. In fact, no one actually cares. And I think, I think when we had our previous conversation, no one cares what your trikonasana looks like. I mean, it's so irrelevant. But if you know where you are in space and time and you're embodied, that's the skill. Or you know, you're like, oh, my right leg feels so different to my left. Great. That's self-awareness. That's, that's the competency we're looking for, not the trikonasana. So yoga is teaching you about yourself. You're not, it's just using yoga to teach you about yourself. And we do some stuff that looks kind of weird. We wear tights to do it. And, <laughs> but it is about you and, and a, about relationship with self. And also... When we've done, when we've had a teacher relationship where we learn to do this co-regulating, 
then you can do it. You can self-regulate yourself. You can almost do it. You can have your own attachment relationship with yourself. But I think that needed, you needed to be kind of weaned on that. And, and then you can do, you don't need your teacher there every moment of the, of the time. But I think I went off track, but there it is. Yeah. No, 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 that's great. It's those, those resources. So what you were saying about yoga being the meal that you prepared earlier and it's in the freezer mm-hmm. and, and this conversation around investing in yoga skill sets for the times of crisis what i'm curious about this because as somebody who studies the human brain and human behavior Mm. you probably know that humans are not very motivated by long-term results absolutely and i think this has fed into this misperception about yoga as being about flexibility because we have this sense people have this kind of intuitive sense like oh i can do yoga for a few weeks and i'll be more flexible and you know the there's a real misunderstanding here that those of us who are yoga teachers are having these deep conversations about resilience and about co-regulation and about the space between stimulus and response. But that's not what a lot of people who are walking into a yoga room are expecting or thinking about. No. And even if you frame it with mental health, even if you say like yoga helps your mental health, they're still going to be thinking about crisis. They're still going to be thinking about exactly what can I do when I'm in crisis? So this is a really tough thing when it comes to marketing because we have to market. Like we have to, in order to have a viable business model, we have to get people to come to our classes. Right. That's yeah. I love your your business take on it. Well, because I, I've never, I don't know, I think I've marketed a thing in my life. Like I live in a town and it's all, all word of mouth. And it's, so that's how it's worked. But I have marketed now to the wider world, I guess, with courses. I don't actually think one should label one's class yoga for mental health. Because I think it all is anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think what people want to feel and what you can, as a teacher, create is, is that space there. Mm-hmm. And that sense, really yoga is about kind of loving yourself and connecting with yourself. And you do that physically because that, that sheath is a very important sheath. And I think if you run at people's mental health too quickly, they're likely to run for the door pretty quickly too. Because if I start asking you about your mental health and we don't have a relationship of trust, that's not going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So I think the main thing you can, I, I actually think I market my classes as safe classes where you will, I will give you lots of options and lots of choices. And, and I am ready for you to accept, reject, or modify anything. And I am empowering you, therefore. I am seeing you. I'm supporting you. I'm not asking you to do something that you don't want to do or f- feel safe to do. In fact, when you choose a choice and not just the generic version, I'm proud of you because you are developing a skill where you have felt inside and said, I don't like this. I need something else. Oh, this feels better. Hey, you just did interoception. You just felt in. My mental health goals are done for the day for you, really, in, in, in a big way. What they feel like is this woman sees me, supports me, is happy to, to offer whatever it is, is unattached to whether I can do it or not. I feel safe with this person. And I'm feeling pretty chuffed on myself for making those choices. 
So I'm starting to feel like I'm not such a bad person too. And then they leave and they go, I feel better. And it's a, it's a feel better. That's a holistic feel better. So yes, your prana is moving, you, you know, a little more flexible, a little stronger, whatever it is, but there is also a kind of, eh, which is a calm, better. And that, I don't know how you market it, but I think safety is a huge thing. And so I, I don't think I'm a big rejecter of everyone shooting for the moon and talking all this, it's not philosophy crap, but there's a lot of crap that is spoken and people go straight for the, for the deep, subtle sh- chakras and deep, subtle koshas. And it's like, no, these people have a body and their body is a tool to help them keep that body safe, please. And make that body feel safe and know how, know your anatomy or whatever it is to keep them safe and be accessible. So I love accessible yoga and Jeevan Heyman's whole thing. And that can be anything from their gender, their sexuality, their color, their everything. Feel safe, feel included, and then you're supporting their mental health too. So there's a marketing angle to be like completely. um, Well, it sounds like the yoga for mental health is almost a stealth benefit. It, I don't think you can come at it directly like that. I agree with you. It's, it's, I, I address it in the class. Like if I'm in a class, I got one of 20, 25 people or whatever. I used to sort of riff away over the top, you know, like a sermon, you do this, do that. And then off you go. And I often talk about how I'm managing things or how I go. Now, when we do this one, I don't know, Supta Parangasasana, you take your leg across your body. It's like, Ooh, down the outside thigh. Right. And, and I'm like, be a cheap date on this one. How far do you have to push? Are you a pusher? Are you a, are you a flop out? Oh, I can't do this. I just give up with the first sign of difficulty. Who are you here? Are you flexible? Are you strong? So that just reflecting back onto who they are and, and what do you need? Do you need to challenge a bit or does that immediately make you go into an anxiety thing? Have you stopped breathing, smiling, wishing goodwill? Cause if you can't do that, it's not yoga. We can all grit our teeth. So can you push a bit? but then know when you've pushed too hard and go, calm down, baby, calm down, let's come back. Or are you flopping around just daydreaming, not, in, not present? So in a way I'm kind of, yeah, talking to them about their minds, but I make it funny. I mean, I make, I make it kind of a joke because it is hilarious what the mind does. It has no shame. Yeah, so we're talking about yoga, which is yeah. awareness. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily putting it in the context of something kind of heavy, you know, mental health. People think of that as heavy, even though, Mm. no, if you think about it, mental health is light. (laughs) Mental health is light. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But the words that have come to me that are words that we can use in marketing are self-care and self-empowerment. And now self-care both of these are a little bit of buzzy words, right? So we got to be careful of how much we use them and in what context we use them. But I do think self-care is something that people are now willing to invest in and willing to ask for help with. And that is something that we can really offer in a yoga class that feels safe, where there's a lot of options and we're being empowered, even though that's a word that's maybe sometimes a little overused. Um, But we are empowered to make choices and to and we're guided to notice why we're making the choices that we're making so all that language is talking about i mean self-care and self-empowerment makes you feel very alone 
and I think the whole, what you were talking about though, we are empowered is by the teacher's presence in a way. The teacher isn't saving you or healing you or doing anything, but he's guiding you and supporting you and scaffolding you to, 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 to in, engage in self-care mm-hmm. and to make choices that empower yourself. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's not that lonely because I think especially in Western society, it's like, well, you should be healthier and you should be better. You know, you should be doing this stuff. And people are like, I can't, I just can't. Um, I, there was a TV show on uh, here, which is called the doctor that gave up drugs or something. I, I, I can't remember, but it was a GP who got so frustrated at all the prescriptions being written. And when he tried to sit in for a day, he wrote prescriptions too. And he took some people with chronic pain and with depression and said, okay, I'm going to just work with these people more closely. He took one woman cold water swimming for her depression and cold water swimming worked really, really well. But then he, she, he was like, great. So go cold water swimming. But she didn't want to go cold water swimming by herself. I go swimming. I go swimming with this gang of people that I meet every Sunday morning and every Thursday morning. I know one or many of them will be on the veranda of the surf club. I don't have to call anyone. I don't have to make a date. I don't have to initiate. I just have to rock up. And I know they will be there and I will have someone to swim with. You swim by yourself. <laughs> you don't talk. But, you, but it's a connection and it's a group. And that supported self-care, I think, is really important. And he said, I realized supported exercise, supported self-care. So yoga is a, is a radical act of self-care. But it, not a lot of people have a home practice or have the confidence or the knowing for a home practice. And what we're trying to do as yoga teachers is teach ourselves right out of a job by teaching our, them into the sense that I could do this at home. In fact, I don't want to do what you just told us to do. I don't want to do a backbend. I want to do a twist. It's like, good, do the twist. I'm just here. Well, you are speaking to something, a dynamic that's really interesting because I do know a lot of yoga teachers who wish their students would practice at home and they don't want to, they want the group. So here's the other piece. I think the group is great. So we had, we just pulled stuff out of the freezer on a bad day. I got that idea of bad days from um, Judith Lasseter, who I admire and have loved her work and gotten so much from. And someone said to her, when should I practice yoga at home? And she said, on the days when you want to feel better. Mm. And I thought that was so clever. I was like, okay. And then I thought, (laughs) but wait a second, then you're only practicing yoga when you feel bad. And if you feel bad, you don't know what yoga because you're disconnected anyway. And so you probably won't. You'll probably have a milkshake or chocolate or do something different. So I thought, Exactly. We've got to, we've got to preload the yoga skills. So there are bad days, but then there are also what I call the got up, got out of bed, dragged a comb across my head days, where it's most days, you know, you got to get the kids to school or you've got this many phone calls and you're already buzzing forward. Are you going to do your practice? Cause you're already kind of there. You're not here. And on those days we need routines. So I don't know how you start. I start my practice pretty much the same way every time I flop on the floor, circle my knees, roll around a little bit and kind of drop. And that drops me into my body. And then at the end of the, say, 10, 15, 20 minutes, I either get up and go to work or um, I, I go, oh, I'm tired. I should do, you know, sit and meditate or I might do a big, strong standing practice. But I know at that point what I need, whereas before I didn't. I just knew I needed to do yoga because experience has told me it's a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I, and I have this routine. So I think we're setting people up with these routines without being mindlessly repetitive because then people stop engaging. Right. 
but then they can do the little routine you do in class and do that at home. Mm-hmm. And they might, they might, that might start to be a home practice. And then the, 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 the final side of it is the really good days when you bounce out of bed and you're like, nah. and that's when you do the things that are hard. So that's when you're, you're right in the window. And that's when, for me, um, I consider meditation hard. I've developed a, a more of a practice now as I've progressed, but for a, for a very long time, say 25 years, <laughs> sitting still or 20 years, sitting still is not that easy for me. So I have to work on that when I'm feeling well so that I can neuroplastically kind of have positive associations with it. And I'm doing it on my best days when I've got the best chance of success to go. The, and now I love how, when I say, what do you do on, what challenging things do you do? A lot of people are like, well, I work on my back bends. And I'm like, no, think of this, think of the limbs of yoga. We start with our ethics and we start with that. And then we go to asana. It's only number three. And then we breathe and then we sit and we sit and we sit. So think of it that way rather than more difficult circus tricks. Anyway. That's, right. But that's going back to that progress they can visualize. Exactly. Whereas feeling safe and still is an amazing success. Or, I mean, this comes from polyvagal theory too, that you have, they have three platforms of response to stress, which are hierarchically and evolutionarily organized. And so our most evolved is our social engagement system. So I might, I feel bad. So I'm going to seek you. Meadow, can we have a talk? And you go, it's all right. And we have this nice engagement and I feel better. But maybe my upbringing didn't bring me, I didn't seek someone, nobody was there for me. So then my reaction to stress is to go sympathetic and be mobilized. And I think a lot of our society is in the flight fight mode. It's also valued in our society because it's very productive. (laughs) So it's like, gee, she's getting a lot done. Yep, she's jumping out of her skin at the same time, but doesn't matter, she's also getting a lot done. And so that we deal with stress that way. And if we have no chance to mobilize, we default to the freeze mode, the more lizard mode, which is that dissociation or um, looks a lot like depression or, or zoning out. And so, but in between those states are these mixed states. And one mixed state is play. So play, when you see puppies rolling or kids rolling, you know, you're like, someone's going to get hurt. They're, they're socially engaging and they're mobilizing at the same time. And a really good, strong, like vinyasa or flowing practice, you feel so activated, but you also feel safe. You know, where you're like, ooh, but you can, you can calm yourself down at the same time. That's a really, really resilient nervous system that can go, wow, this is hard. Okay, sick with a breath. And then there's can you feel still and safe? And so we need that stillness for intimacy, for um, sexual intimacy, for birthing, for really close family stuff. There's a lot of people when you get them in close, they, they can't sit still and stay. So can they feel safe and still is another one. And those mixed states are when we're really seeing, if you ask me about what mental good mental health looks like, it's, big wide windows of tolerance for lots of things and the ability to rev yourself up, calm yourself down and nuance appropriately to events. But that's a, that's a really resilient nervous system. Yeah. So talk to me about the skills that yoga teachers need to facilitate this in their classes. So they need to be practicing at home and it doesn't matter what it looks like. You need to face yourself 
And if you can't, then you need to go, I can't. Look at this. Today, I can't. So I recently had a thing where I've, I've had this weird pain in my leg. It's fine. You know, so I've ruled out all the nasty things, but it's really painful. And it was, and it's going and it's fine. But it was so interesting to be a teacher of teaching people how to cope with mental health. And I also work with people in pain to have this pain because it is not easy. And I found I really had trouble practicing myself. Now I've been teaching 20 years and practicing, I don't know, 30. So, and I was kind of pacing around and just couldn't settle. The thing that helped me so much was to do Zoom classes. Luckily it was all during COVID. I could do Zoom classes with my dear teachers over the internet. Their voice calmed me down so much. So sometimes, you know, getting a teacher to help you, your own teacher, don't forget if you're a teacher that you need your own teacher sometimes to guide you. The other thing is then be your own teacher and, and, and commit to something where you just go through a little routine and you say, I'm going to do my 10 minutes and I'll see what happens. And then you, you feel what you feel and you face what you face. Cause that's, and whatever that is, is okay. And I think that okayness, you don't have to feel, doesn't have to be sunny, doesn't have to be perfect. And you realize everybody wakes up and feels crap to fantastic, mediocre in between. But check in with yourself how you feel because then you'll know where you're working from for the day. And maybe you can shift it, maybe you can't, but you can drop in. And then you can have, which psychological language says, unconditional positive regard for your students. And otherwise it's recognizing the divine and others, if that's, if you go for divine things, but you can hold that space for people and know that they are, everyone is up and down and that that up and down is impermanent and that deeper to people in people is that, that deep goodness, that deep open heartedness, that presence that is your, your, yourself that you come to in stillness. And there's a kind of faith that that's there. And I'm not talking a religious face, it's sort of a secular faith. You see that in people if you know that in yourself. So I think the skill set is do your stuff. And then the skill set is uh, I'm really big on being safe, being uh, so don't teach a stupid class that hurts people. Don't take the coach, coach mode. So I know in our previous conversation, we talked about sort of separating exercise and fitness from yoga. We want to be really careful because as coaches, it's, you're, you're like, two more. Yeah, and that's, it's the you're not good enough till you've done two more message. And I, we have to be very, very careful with that. Yeah, definitely from my long experience in teaching, it's much harder to get people to back off than it is yeah. to help them do two more, you know, like yeah. they tend to show up already indoctrinated yeah. into that mode that their worth and their value is based on what they can achieve or accomplish. Yeah, that's right. And so somehow undoing that a little bit, changing the narrative is a huge gift, a huge potential for, for benefit in a yoga class. And just teaching well. So when I think about what is it, what do yoga teachers do that when they teach well? They, they step into difficulty. So they'll give you the basic version and then they'll say, and then you could add this and then you could add that. It's like, you don't want to juggle with 17 balls at the same time. Let's start with one and then you add two and then you add three. And if you drop a ball, go down a ball. So you're in a way leaving breadcrumbs in the woods so that if they need to walk out, they can, they can go back down and you've empowered them to say, actually, that's enough. I don't need four balls. I'm good with three. That challenge is enough for me. 
-hmm. So I think that's just good yoga teaching. I think being able to offer, to tell people about, like to say, if your knee hurts in pigeon, it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because your hip isn't getting the external rotation and flexion that you need. So it's going down to your knee. What if we give you the other options where you're not leaning into your knee? You've immediately made people not direct the criticism at themselves and go, oh, you mean there's a club for people who have knee pain and pigeon? You bet there is. There's a support group. So as a teacher, you're, you're, you're managing the buffet of options and you're their waitress for the day or their waiter for the day and you're, you're offering those things without attachment. I think that's a very important skill set, which means you have to know more as a teacher. You got to try a lot of stuff and don't just teach what you like or what you're good at. And that whole point of teaching without attachment it also mm. extends to sometimes people are going to be trying to juggle six balls and they can't yeah. and they keep dropping them and you can't shame or blame them for not True. knowing how to back off either <laughs> no in fact i say i say I, I see you're someone who pushes themselves that's good. You know, that's, that's okay. So my job with you, I recognize you as someone who pushes yourself. You don't need to be pushed. So my job as your teacher is to bring you back in the middle. So I might, you might find me encouraging you to do less. Mm -hmm. And then those who are lazy. So that's why I'm always saying to them, if you're one of those people that gives up at the first sign of struggle, you can go to five out of 10 or six out of 10. If you're one of those people that's at a nine out of 10 all the time, could you come back to four or five out of 10, please? And so in a way it's being humorous with people because you give them a challenge and then I'll say, how are your fists or your eyebrows or your lips here? Like, are you in that kind of grimace of struggle? Have you breathed? Because it's in a way we're giving people stress in a way we're saying okay do this and then bring your leg across and press your big toe and da -de da -de da and you can see when it's one too many instructions and they're like eh. and then go okay let go of that instruction did i just push you too much with that instruction let it go because if you're not breathing and smiling and wishing goodwill it kind of it's not yoga we need to come back to wherever that is even if that's us lying on the floor and staring at the ceiling because if the yoga bit is the bit where you breathe and smile and wish goodwill and then we're doing other stuff while we do that Right. So, and that's, that's comes back again to that, that tough balance of people coming in and thinking yeah. it's about like getting hold of their foot or making this shape. Yeah. And yeah, I, I love though how you bring the humor into it. Cause I think that that does lighten it up. I do too. And the other thing that I think is really important when you talk about that skill set of, of offering the menu and offering the step-by-step is to give them cues along the way that are Absolutely. not about their advancement or lack of advancement, but something like, can you feel your, you know, your shoulder blades pulling towards each other here? If you can't, you need to go back or whatever that's it right. is. Like the cue that's really something that they can measure to know whether to go forward or back. That doesn't, or, it's not, that's not a value judgment, right? It's just- Not at all. No, when you're in your all fours and you lift your leg behind you, does your belly fall out on the floor? Because mm -hmm. yeah. that's not going to be very good for your back. So can you find some level of containment there and keep breathing and lift your leg? And that's and you're you're giving exactly you're such a good point because you're making interoceptive cues. They're also valueless cues. It's not about better or worse. It's 
for your own integrity? Are you able to balance these, these balls, exactly. but they're balls of awareness rather than balls of difficulty? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I, the other thing is, is I've noticed when people come into class, when you're new, you, you want everyone to love you. Maybe it's just me. I just want everyone to love you. I want to be, me, to be popular. We've got that. I want to be patted on the head by the yoga teacher and told, you know, good girl. And I love it. And they're like, so we all want to please. And they will do anything to please you. If you say two more, they'll do 10 more because they want to please you because of your position of authority and power at that you're standing on that central mat, regardless of what they know about you personally and really. But um, we need to take that position of authority really seriously because if we say do this, they will 110%. And you see people come in and they're, they're trying to impress you. And sometimes if you're a new teacher, you're trying to impress them and it's all just a big fiesta. I love the moment when I see students stop kind of looking around and overly listening and I see them drop into their body and I see them go, all right, I get what she's saying. Boom. And I'll say to them at the end of class, it looked like you really dropped into your body. And they were like, Oh my gosh, they, they could feel the moment where they were like, actually this chick likes me. It's fine. I, she doesn't, she really just wants me to do something for myself. And, but they, it takes a few times. You don't go to a new class with new people in a new environment with a new teacher and get relaxed right away. Right. I don't care who you are. I mean, you know, I, again, teaching, you know, practicing 20 years or with the teaching 20 years, I still walk into a new environment and go, I hope everybody likes me. I mean, it sounds pathetic, but that's my six-year-old self that wants not to be rejected by the group and wants to, you know. But like halfway through the class, don't you kind of get there? Totally. Oh, much quicker. <laughs> and I stop and I, I also laugh at myself. Oh, no, I actually don't go to that many yoga classes. What I mean more is like workshops or things like that, you know, where you're like, everyone's there and... I actually found silent things really difficult unless we had opening circles because I made up everybody's story and they were horrifyingly insecure stories on my part until one day I was like, what are you doing? Listen to your mind making these stories up and you meet the people later and they're the nicest people in the world. But because I couldn't have that connection to know if that we were okay, <laughs> I was making up these stories like, oh, they're probably, you know, and then going, you know, what is this story in your head? from not making sure everyone was okay, yeah. I think it's so helpful to tie this back to the mental health conversation. Yeah. You know, to know that everybody has these struggles. Your yoga yeah. teacher has these struggles. And so there is a balance and a fine line when we are a teacher between sharing a bit of our yeah. imperfection and just kind of letting it all hang out and inappropriately, you know, making the conversation about us and about our struggles, right? I think what I teach and what I train is like what every story in class has to lead to something that's helpful for your students, right? So you do want to share, I struggle, but in a way that is going to empower them to feel like, okay, I'm normal. And now I have something I can kind of work on. That's right. And the, the key thing is, is you don't make it about you. So although you share that, in no way has it been about you. And that is, that is why yoga teachers need to do their work because, and we often feel better, don't we? We feel we, you know, life is wreck of the Hesperus at home and we, and we were like, hey, I'm not gonna go teach. And you often feel better because you put all your stuff to the side to make that space. And then you come out and you go, oh, my stuff seems less. Yeah, any teacher who brings their stuff to class and makes it about them 
then they need to go do some more more so they shouldn't be teaching in, in, in whether it's physical or mental or something you need to and i don't mean we don't have bad days and things but the ability to put it away is it's a service and that's why service is so good for mental health you know the, all the positive psychology people say find your strengths and it's really good practice to identify your strengths and their website gives you a place to do that identify your strengths or get a mentor to help you identify your strengths know what they are also know what you need to work on. Those are good things, but you work from your strengths to work on those things. And then find situations that challenge you appropriately. If you're over-challenged, you're gonna collapse and go into survival. We all know how to do that. We don't need practice surviving. But if you can be pushed, if you can push so that you're working your strengths to a kind of flow level, to a like, ooh, then, and if, this, if you could do all that in the service of other people, that is a prescription for happiness. Absolutely. And I, to me, that's yoga teaching. Yeah. That's so, like, that's why, that's why it's so addictive, right? That's why so people addictive. love it so much. Absolutely. I think that in the context of this conversation, yeah. the other flip side is important to bring up because I've had so many conversations recently with yoga teachers who are feeling guilty for feeling better after they teach or like getting something mm. out of, yeah, getting something out of the relationship, right? And so I think that this message of service, service, service has been really pounded into yoga teachers to the point that somehow that has been compounded with, that must mean I, I need to be depleted or something. Oh my and, gosh, no. <laughs> right? So, so I just think that every time these days, every time I talk about service as a yoga teacher and how important that is, I feel responsible for saying that doesn't mean it should deplete you. It should fill you up. If it doesn't, something's wrong. It has to be an exchange where everybody's lifted. Otherwise, yeah. you can't keep giving. You can't. I actually think that service where you deplete yourself is irresponsible. Exactly. You know, there's people who are constantly not paying attention to their family and out doing all this stuff, and they're, they're depleting themselves. Because really, if you're doing it in that selfless way, it will replenish you. It's, it's, um, if you're giving up, giving up, giving up, you're, you're, that's just the own, put your own oxygen mask on first principle. It's irresponsible to fall into a heap because you've completely depleted yourself. And I think, no, let that be, let feel, because that is, that's, so the polyvagal theory is talking about vagus nerve and the vagus nerve is your main mediator of sympathetic, parasympathetic, you know, your rest, digest, calm down system. It's your, it's your empathy system. It's your connection system. So when you connect, you almost have to come in raw and connected. All you have to do is have yourself open enough and safe enough to receive, and then you vibrate and connect, which is so nourishing for you too. That's your social engagement system. So it's mutually nourishing to have that connection. Even if you're the one facilitating and they're giving, the feeling of when you... You know those feelings when you teach and you feel like, oh my God, that was a, um, that was a terrible class. I don't know what happened. And often people will be like, oh, that was great. And you're like, really? But if you, when you feel the resonance, it feels so good. You're like, yes, that was so great. And that's when we're feeling, we're really riding it. You can feel that they like it or they don't like it and you ride it perfectly and respond to them almost like a dance. Oh, that's just like a, a high drug. And I, I think people should be, seeking that connection 
And for right. new, new yoga teachers, it's ner- it's hard because you're new. And I, I really, my mission in life as a teacher trainer is to be there for the, I'm there for beginners. I'm there for the wonky and the old and the mentally kind of wild and for new teachers because anyone else who's more advanced, you don't need me. You're fine. You go off and do your own thing, but it's, you need to be held and supported and you need, it's really hard to come out of a teacher training and go, I've done my 200 hours and I've taught my first class and all I actually realize is how little I know. But that's like people who are, are good chefs never get asked over for dinner because everyone's afraid to cook for them. And it's, they sometimes love it if you've made them like chicken soup. The, 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 mere, the simplest of meals or the simplest of sequences offered as you offer it humbly and, and in your own way offers that connection. And it's that connection through that your own vulnerability and your own offering that is there that's valuable. And I think people underestimate it and undervalue their own capacity to offer something. I agree. And I think that if you don't feel good after teaching consistently, yeah, That's consistently. Not a good sign, right? Of course, we're all gonna we're all yeah. gonna have an off day. We're all gonna have days where we walk away. We're like, what the heck was sure. that? Exactly. <laughs> but more often than not, especially let's say you've been teaching at least six months, hmm. then more often than not, you should feel a bit. You should feel lifted by yeah. teaching. And yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. And and I, that's a good yeah. sign that a positive symbiotic exchange has taken place. Yeah. Yeah. And I, if, if not, I would, I would seek mentoring or evaluation, you know, if you, because then I think it's really good to have someone look at your teaching. I've had students send me a video and go, how am I going? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, I'm going to give, I'm going to be really, really honest with them too. And, and, but it, most of the time they're going really, really well. And they're just, it's almost their own worry that's getting in the way. So, and, and if there is a thing where they're, they're making a mistake, then who better to hear it from than someone that you already have a relationship with who already knows your strengths. So if you're in a position of being that mentor, please identify their strengths first, really look at what this person is doing well and what they did well and note those things down. And it's not that, you know, that criticism sandwich, but those things are really important. People need to know what they did well and then choose the one thing where it seems to let them down. And that one thing can be, and then we'll work on the other stuff later, but that one thing where it's like, this is getting in your way and then that's it. And then let's talk again. And usually knowing what your strengths are really helps you play to them. I think. I agree. And one of the ways that I like to think about that one thing and what I think is a helpful way to frame it is their potential for growth. Yeah. Here's potential for growth. That's what I mean. Here's where I see that you could really fly this. You work on this one thing and that's just going to make things so much more powerful, so much more potent. Um, That's perfect language, potential for growth. Cause I, I, exactly. You don't want to say what's letting you down, but your potential for growth here. Yeah. Cause sometimes it has nothing to do with what they're doing wrong. It has to do with a strength that they're not fully embodying yet. Exactly. Right. In fact, mostly. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what yeah. I would focus on. That's what I do focus on when I'm yeah. in yeah. A, a trainer scenario is I don't want to like tell you what you're worst at. <laughs> like I want to no. see your potential, that's see your right. strengths and ask yeah. myself how, like, how are you holding back from what you're capable of being? Like yeah. the type of cap- teacher you are capable of being, mm. not comparing like you against 
somebody else, right? Cause we're all different. We're all going to teach totally differently. Different. And what you're saying is so right. When you, when you're um, evaluating a teacher like that, when you're doing that, actually what you feel, if you really use your own sense is what you wish they would let themselves do. It's like, I wish you would just let yourself be yourself here, come out, fly. And it's, uh, that's often what you talk about is like, I felt like you held that back. And, and it's that feeling like, be you, go, do it. And exactly. they're often editing themselves. Yeah. Oh, like the people who are hilarious in conversation and then yeah. they start teaching and they're like, a robot? Yeah. <laughs> or they know? use that really powdery yoga voice. Okay. I hate that powdery yoga voice. Yeah. <laughs> well, because it's, because it's, a, and this is a big thing for me and a big back to the mental health thing is, and yoga in general, uh, I, and maybe I lack a little bit of powdery yoga voice, but I'm a real sort of boom like that because I want to keep it real because any artifice scares me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've, I'm like, okay, why are they putting on a facade? What's going on? Right. Whereas, whereas yoga feels to me like one of the only places where we can come in barefoot in our tights and be ourselves. And you can literally see people take their facade off and leave it at the door and have a sigh. You know, you're doing well when you're when your students sigh, when they walk in the room, cause they're mm -hmm. like, oh, finally I can just be me. It's this place where you really can be your authentic self and you can, you can try it on and, and come from it and let that authentic self grow and develop and be. And then you have to put a few filters back on when you go out into the world to be appropriately protected and whatever, but that authentic self can grow and you can start to go, you know what? I can, I can drop this bit of facade. I don't think I need it anymore. But yoga, and that's a part of the reason that yoga is so good for mental health also is that it's weird. So yeah. we go, I, I love the weirdness of yoga. So we have to be careful and be conscious that it's weird if you're so enculturated in yoga that you think it's normal, because it's not. You walk and you tell people who normally wear shoes to go bare feet. They normally wear clothes and they're wearing like tights and tight fitting stuff. And well, maybe, I mean, who cares what they wear really? You know, but, and then there's this whole culture of like green smoothies and mats and you know, all this stuff. But it's also an opportunity to recreate your personality or re not, not recreate but try on something new or some it's like when kids change schools they don't have to be who everybody thought they were they can be who they really feel like they are mm -hmm. and you can you can just be and and see who you are without people telling you who you are i think that so that's the ideal i think that's the the yeah. type of space that we want to hold for our students as teachers mm. i mm. don't know that it's they're like, I don't know that every class that's labeled yoga is like that. No, I, I know that every class that's not labeled, that labeled yoga is not like that. And I think, I think it's gone very strange up a weird spout. Anyway, I mean, you know, you get this, well, because it's gotten so corporatized and so sort of, and then a lot of teachers aren't even able to make their own class because they're told how to be by their I don't know. I've never worked for style, something like that. By the style yeah. that they teach or the studio the brand. they teach at. So they're, yeah. That's right. So that's um, luckily something I haven't had to do. And look, the world is as it is. If you have a job and that's the only job you have, you have to work within the constraints of a workplace. As long as they don't stifle your soul to the point where it's not worth doing, you're going to find some kind of medium. But if it's stifling you to that point, you're not creating a genuine environment where you're inviting people for authenticity and self-care. And I'm not sure if what you're doing. 
I think it would go back to how do you feel at the end of class? That's right. You know, do you feel filled up, lifted, like you've made a difference? If not, if the yeah. whatever constraints you're teaching under make you feel depleted at the end of class, then get another job. Like, yeah, maybe quit teaching yoga. If, mm. you know, if you're teaching for the money, there's so many other better ways to make money. <laughs> I know. Or just like, teach your neighbors in your garage for a while. You know, I mean, right. it's, yeah. But it's easy to say, you know, from our position where, I mean, I make my entire living doing yoga and, and have done now for years. So, but, and I hit it at the right time and I, you know, so there's a lucky chain of events. But don't underestimate that model of teaching somewhere small and letting word of mouth do it and and making a difference that way because that's that can be very powerful and you can create a community that is a really authentic community you need a little space that is space is difficult but there are spaces in the world yeah maybe now you don't even need a space because you can i don't know how you find zoom people just at it randomly but you can teach your friends and neighbors and they might tell someone well yeah. it depends on how connected you are and who you're connected yeah. to because when it you does. first start out you're always drawing on your personal connections of course you and are. that's you know that's the first thing that a lot of new yoga teachers ask me how do i find students i'm like well yeah. gosh you got to talk yeah. to the people you already know yeah because right. they want to support you there's yeah. you know there's no reason for a random stranger to choose your class unless yeah. you're the only one in town but yeah your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, your former colleagues, they are yeah. going to, they're going to be attracted to your class. They're going to be like, Oh yeah. Yay. Oh my gosh. How exciting you're teaching yoga yeah. now. So that's, that's where you want to yeah. go. And then you can do bring a friend for free day. You know, there's, there's, there's so many ways to offer. I, I did, a, I, I think I've spoken at every little charity organization just to give people a little bit of like, let's do a little bit of yoga in a chair. And it was my gift to them. But eventually you spread the goodwill and they go, oh, you know, she seemed nice. I might try that. It's also about playing the long game. That's one of the bits of advice I've given to students is because those first, it's going to be a while. And if there's one person in the class and you're like, oh, what am I doing? I'm paying rent. I'm you know, paying for this class. You may have made a connection with that one person that will be the connection that, that builds on. So that might've been, but you're both needed, but also, uh, the teachers who you see are doing well have stayed their course through thick and thin through winter and summer and through that they've just stuck to it mm -hmm. and it slowly snowballs into something yeah. and you just have to stay your course if you can afford it. And if you can, and it can still be doing something for you, you got to play a long game. I think every teacher who has, you know, has made some kind of success yeah. of teaching yoga has a story of, you know, the class that they taught, I've got one, I think I taught for sure. probably close to two years with just, maybe it was just one year, one or two years with just two people in the class. Yeah. Day, like week in, week out. And the studio owner, for some reason, let it keep going. So I was like, okay. Okay. <laughs> and I, you know, the class eventually grew to 20. Yeah. It just takes time for it to get out there. I mean, you can, you can make it happen a little faster, but I don't know. I agree. And I, and you, don't undervalue what you're learning where you can learn really with two people and really give them a lot of attention and, and see what they're doing rather than managing a room full of people as a beginning mm -hmm. teacher. That's a lot to watch. So, yeah. Yeah. I do yeah. think that something interesting is happening and maybe I'm just being exposed to different people, but mm. I, 
you know, because of what I do and how I help yoga teachers with business, I do have a lot of brand new yoga teachers reaching out to me being like, yeah. all right, so how do I, how do I make my living teaching yoga? And you know, like they've just graduated from teacher training. I'm like, I'm not sure that I can tell you how to do that. Like yeah. I can, I can give you some ideas, but making that happen as a brand new teacher is going to be the exception and you're going to have to be really exceptional in some way. And I don't know what sure. way that's going to be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or move somewhere where there's no yoga set up the only, yeah. only shop in town. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have heard of brand new teachers, you know, making a full living just by circumstances. Right. It, yeah. I guess you don't have to be exceptional. Yeah. Like, you don't have to be an exceptional teacher, have an exceptional connection. You could just be in an exceptional place. Yeah. But if you live in Asheville or Byron Bay, which is near where I live, then there's a yoga teacher every square inch. Yeah. So you've got to be, you've got to be exceptional. And the thing is, is you also are not going to be the yoga teacher for everyone. So if you want incense and candles and music, you should not come to my class because I, I, I don't do that. I don't, I just, it's just not, I haven't, I haven't done a lot of that fluff around and so my environmental sort of stuff isn't there. But, but if you want, whatever it is, if you want a straight talking chick from New York who's going to give you a bunch of options and instructions, well, there it is. And the, so my students like me, and I've had the other teacher in town does candles and incense and stuff and has been teaching for way longer than me. And her students came across, and one student was so annoyed by me. She's like, you just talk so much, you know? And like, literally, and I was like, well, that's it, because I'm not your yoga teacher. She's away. You came to my class until she comes back but it was really funny how we your your students love you and you can't underestimate that relationship and the way you know they're like oh I, I you know get a replacement and they're like yeah but I liked you and it's like because because I'm your teacher we've developed a relationship and that's what we value and you can be a yoga teacher for a certain group of people and they're going to want what you offer and that's you'll find that community I think you have to have faith in that I think what we were speaking to earlier a little bit, it's really important, is leaning into who you are and leaning yeah. in to what you offer. Because I think if you try to edit yourself and please everybody, then those people who are really going to dig what you have to offer are not going to like it either because you're all I, over yeah. the place. You just said much more articulately what I was trying to waffle on about before. That's it. Exactly. It is lean into who you are, feel who you are, and you do your yoga to be okay with who you are. Because we're all, you know, kind of wonky, kind of normal, kind of normal, but not normal individuals. And so, but that's okay. So if you could lean into that and feel comfortable with it and it doesn't mean being oblivious to criticism. I mean, I, I, you know, but I, I think we've got that self-study and that's, that, there's, there's that balance there. But it's, yeah, letting yourself just be. Because it feels so good when you teach from that place. And do you also mm -hmm. think that working on your own self-acceptance and holding the room with a sense of comfort in who you are gives the people in the room permission to be themselves? Absolutely. If you get out of your own way, so the worst examples of teaching I've seen is when the person was so nervous on the mat that they couldn't even see what people were doing. They were so scripted or so, and of course, if you're, if you're nervous, but the moment they can let go of themselves and just be present, who cares what you plan? It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. It's, it's just look at what they're doing. And if, 
And if you begin to have that reciprocity, you've gotten out of your own way, that's where it flows. And you may have dropped four of the poses that were key to your whole sequence. Doesn't make any difference at all. It's the feeling of reciprocity and that feeling, because it's interesting, if you're too bossy as a yoga teacher, it can feel um, bossy and, and not, not invitational and it can be, be commanding. But if you're too tentative, it also is like, I'm not sure if I trust this person. Like, does this chick know what she's doing? So I, you know, I like a teacher who's like, no, I want it this way. And I'd like you to try it. And the reason I want it is because of this. Now, I know they're not going to beat me if I don't do it that way. But I, they're clear on why they want it. And they've told me why and what. So I relax in the face of that. Because I think this person really knows what they're doing. And they've thought it out. And I, and I like that. So there's that, you've got to have that fine line between that commanding, that invitational, uh, yeah, and sit in that space where you let yourself be. It's much easier said than done. I agree. And I think that that is what makes teaching yoga actually a really great foil for working on your own mental health. Because you are putting, putting yourself in this pressure cooker environment where you're the leader, you're in front of a group, and you're trying to be receptive, present, and just vulnerable enough, like just the right amount of vulnerable. Exactly. It's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> that's a big ask. Yeah. So, you know, and you're standing there in tights, you know, yeah. I mean, you've also, you know, it's, it's that whole, I know we're, so you're, yeah, physically, mentally, everything vulnerable. Absolutely. We're asking a lot. I mean, you're asking a lot of yourself by being a yoga you teacher, are. I guess is what I'm saying. And, you know, you and I, Maria, we've talked a lot about pretty advanced skills today. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I want to acknowledge that for anybody listening who's maybe a new teacher and you're like, oh my God, what are you saying? Yeah. I just have a hard yeah. time talking, telling people to put their right foot there, That's right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you are taking on a really big and really rewarding project by exactly stepping into a role as yoga teacher and for me it's been you know I, I love this conversation around mental health because I do think that being a yoga teacher and the skills required and the th skills that I've worked on to become a good teacher mm. have supported my mental health more than anything else I've ever done like I've never done yeah. therapy mm. and you know like Yes, my practice, my personal practice, my relationship with my students, you know, building self-awareness. These are the things that have improved my mental health. Mm -hmm. I agree. Me too. And I, I never realized it. I, I really, I'm a very, very slow learner. <laughs> so, um, you know, the whole beginning of my yoga thing was about trying to do better and go as far as you can. And then, and then it was teaching and it was like, oh, no, now it's about anatomy and making things safe and very physical. Because if you had spoken to me about mental health then, I would not have enjoyed it. I was not ready to even think about that myself. And I, uh, I don't know what I was sitting on, but I was keeping some things nicely tucked away. And it's only as you practice, and I, I would, what you talked about developing these skills, as you practice, you are really changing yourself, um, your neurobiology. And so when we think it's practice, the consistency of practice, and don't do it seven days a week because then you're neurotic. Just do it five or something. But, you know, have go out for a walk or drink a coffee or do something like that. But 
if you can have a consistency and a playfulness and a joyfulness, it's amazing what happens over time. And, and then developing as a yoga teacher and doing all that really allowed that to open up where I thought, wow, this is all about mental health. This is, the body is, of course, part of it and feeling good in your body makes a difference to your mental health. And that's why it feels so good. But what I was thinking when you were talking about being a new teacher and trying to go, hang on, I'm trying to do mirroring and all this stuff. When you understand about the brain, when you learn something new, you use your cortex to think. You're really thinking hard. You're burning hard. You're hungry. You actually need to feed it with glucose. But as you practice, it goes down to lower parts of your brain, and it's and it comes like you. You probably don't have to think about brushing your teeth. I bet you can do several things at the same time while you're brushing your teeth because it's in that lower part of your brain. And so those first months out there, give it your best to just get those instructions down. Don't have 75 sexy sequences, have three or four that you nail and then begin to play with experiments within those scripts. So you've got a basic script and then you, then you can be more extemporaneous with it. And so then you suddenly think, hang on, I'm not having to think so hard. Now I can be responsive and present. And that is exactly what we're talking about with mental health is that when you're nervous and totally stressed, your brain doesn't work that well. And so you can't do hard stuff and you can't relate. So the relating part of you and the learning, thinking new things part of doesn't work. But when you can drop down and calm that down, you then can operate where your cortex is working brilliantly and you become creative and, you know, can do really cool creative things. It takes a little bit of a few hours to do that. So more I have than, faith in probably, those hours. For most of us, more than a few. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe it even takes the 10,000 hours, but it doesn't. Like you were saying, six months or so. And that's why I keep it simple. Yeah. You know, don't cook elaborate meals for your chef friends because mm -hmm. they don't want whatever it is. They, but cook something simple. Cook your repertoire mm -hmm. of, you know, your thing that you cook. We've all got things we cook. We've all got things we teach that are your little things. And then you, they're your little offerings. Yeah. 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 You develop your little repertoire, I think it's important. Well, especially if you have that consistent practice, yeah. then you can teach from there. If you're not, if you don't, I don't know where you're teaching from if you don't teach from there. Because if you're empty, if you're doing, I've met teachers who I'm like, how many classes do you teach a week? And they're like 25. And I think, oh my gosh. And when he, and they're doing every class. So to think that teaching is your own practice is a big mistake because you're talking, you're not breathing, you're not feeling. So that's a big mistake. And you're, you're undernourished there and you're so you're working with low battery so what is turning your battery up what's what's filling it if you're trying to focus on yourself in your own practice then you're not there for your students no and if you're there for your students you can't be there for yourself so yeah, yeah. but where's the well of awareness and of um i don't know those little details come out of you practicing yourself those things you notice, but also the feeling for a sequence. Do you know when a sequence just feels threaded together like random beads or when you feel like, Ooh, yes, this, this feels so good because the person has felt it and moved through it before they've taught it to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So what else? Is there anything else that you think yoga teachers need to know from this conversation? <sighs> about mental health or about the world in general? Yeah. Mm, um, well, you know, <laughs> Whatever, I think, I think what, you know, so the other point that we haven't talked about that I think is important is 
I mean, whether you're going to do a course or not, is is to read a little bit about trauma-informed yoga. And there's, you know, um, David Emerson wrote the book. He did the trauma-centered, trauma-informed yoga. And there's other, or maybe he did trauma-sensitive yoga. There's also trauma-informed. He did trauma-sensitive, trauma-centered, trauma-sensitive yoga. It's a great book, and there's a book for therapists as well. Um, and he's written some articles. There's some great in, um, interviews on YouTube. But to get a little idea of that everyone in their life has probably had a bit of trauma. So there's, they call it big T trauma and little T trauma. So obviously if you've had domestic violence or military, you know, also childhood trauma, that's a very different thing. But in your class, you may have those people and you don't know. So having a few trauma sensitive awarenesses is a good idea. And one of them is don't touch people you don't know. You know, basically don't do stuff to people without con consent. So, and, and I wouldn't touch a new person because we're new. I'm not going to walk up to someone at the shop. So I'm going to let a student start to feel comfortable. And then I might say, can I offer you an adjustment? And you know, just even as you approach them, approach them slowly. And you can see them whether they, they shirk away from you or not. Even if you're using consent cards or not, if they flipped it over, they might have forgotten that they flipped it over. You, you've got to keep checking. And that's a way of having that, that relationship. So, you know, be careful. But I also, you know, it doesn't mean be afraid of touch. For some of my students, I may be the only person who touches them all week. So, but they're students I know, and I know I have ongoing consent, and I, and I can read in the body language and, and stuff. So that's a big one. And I think that idea of invitational language of, of, and of, of being non-attached to things, because if you command people, or you make it seem like this is the good pose and that's the remedial pose, the baby version of the pose, this is sort of hierarchy, then we're always striving for something that we're not. And we always see the gulf between. Whereas when we go, well, what's your version? You know, how are you accessorizing this for yourself? And if you, you use a block or you use a strap and then they always use the block or the strap, you're like, oh good, you got your props, you know exactly what you need, well done. I don't have to worry about you so much. It's so relaxing having you in my class because I know you can take care of yourself. I think those, that kind of attitude is important and, and makes a safe space. So I think, I mean, we've talked about it with accessibility. That's a big part of trauma-informed because then there's also gender, color, all those other things that are really important to just make space for, I have a friend who uses different pronouns than me. So I identify as she, so if you use she, but this friend of mine uses they and their. And it never occurred to me people would use they and their till she told me, you know, <laughs> till they told me, see, I just mm -hmm. used it wrong. Yeah, yeah. And now I realize when I do my workshop, we have our first time on the week, on the weekend, tomorrow morning, I'm gonna have our first online session. I'm gonna ask everyone what their pronouns are. Because if I don't ask, they won't know why you're asking. So already I've given a level of awareness, but there may be someone in the training who does identify as they or yeah. any other thing. So even when you make space for something that you don't even understand, you still have said to them, I thought of this. Mm -hmm. I'm aware that not everybody is like me and I've thought of this. And I think in the, in the context of, I think what's going on now with, Black Lives Matter and with, uh, the, I know that there was legislation with the transgender stuff in, in the Supreme Court and all this stuff. We need to think as yoga teachers and think, you know, we're not all skinny white females. 
where that that doesn't feel inclusive. It was that same thing when we started about feeling normal. Right. There is no normal. Right. Yeah. And you know, I think that if you are somebody who is within the yoga culture fits the the expectations. So you're female, you're probably white or mm. at least have a lot of experience in white culture and you you know you identify with your same your birth sex, right? Yep. Um you don't know what's going to feel harmful to people, right? Yeah. Because you're just within your bubble. And so it's this huge gift to say, I'm going to step out of my bubble and I'm going to get trained to understand. I'm going to consciously ask for education to understand how I might be making people feel uncomfortable with my language without being at all aware of it. So it's not that you're a bad person. It's not that there's anything wrong with who you are. It's just that your intention to create a safe space for somebody, for other people requires education, just like you, you needed anatomy education and perhaps you're getting education in neurobiology and maybe you're really interested in yoga philosophy. If you, if you are part of kind of the expected culture. Yeah, dominant culture. Dominant culture. Okay, so if you're part of the dominant culture, then you need to expect that you have to invest and get and and make the effort to be educated around how you can have your language be more inclusive. And if you think being educated can bypass discomfort, then they're wrong. So that education is going to inevitably be uncomfortable. There's that little bit of stress as you're trying to integrate all this new information, whether it's anatomical or whether it's something you've got to be like, and particularly when you're the fish climbing out of its water and going, hang on, there is that discomfort. And then maybe that, Oh, hang on. I have, I was talking to a friend who um, runs um, trainings for, you know, prenatal and postnatal and stuff. And it's a very feminine environment, but what's feminine, you know, suddenly it's like, wait a second, there's so many assumptions around it. And they've tried to create this beautiful space. And it is a beautiful space. It's absolutely lovely. But yes, we've got to get out and just feel a little uncomfortable and go, ooh, hang on. What does that mean? And, and, and that is what yoga equips you to do so well. So yoga really helps you feel, I found in these last few weeks of, of Black Lives Matter and I, that, I've, that I've tried to just get as educated as I can. And I feel this incredible discomfort. I feel the discomfort in my body. And then I feel this sadness and whether it's sadness at uh, what I've perpetrated or my ignorance or what, I don't, I don't need to analyze that so much, but just let that sort of run and then, and then keep leaning into it because I, um, cause uh, Michelle Cassandra Johnson was saying that in, in an interview with Shannon Crow, if it's easy, you're not doing it. You know, if it's it, so yoga equips you so well to, to just feel that discomfort and go, it's all right. Like it's okay. Calm down. Where is the discomfort and, and explore it. It lets you breathe down. So it's not too much because if you get scared, you can't handle it. There's no point. You're not doing it either. You squirrel back into your hole. So if we make, I, I love the other person. Someone's thing someone said to me is let's not call people out. Let's call people in. 
So when we're there like, oh, you know, you're getting the whole gender thing wrong, you're getting the whole color thing wrong, you're just going to make them feel afraid. Whereas if we go, how about if we tried this? It's a really different, it's an invitation rather than a look what you did, which is pointing, pointing fingers all over the place. So I think, I think yoga with mental health and with all of this learning that we're doing culturally equips you to let your body feel it and then let your, let yourself know it in a way that hasn't been this story you're telling yourself. I love that. And I love how this is actually really coming full circle into this conversation around mental health. Like, Mm. okay, so we're not talking about mental illness. We're talking about mental health and the capacity to lean into discomfort and to figure out how far you can lean and, and maintain your, your sense of self and your poise to some degree that's mental health right there your equanimity even and also to know when to leap back to go too much turn it off i don't feel safe it's too much for me today that's a really good boundary to have too Mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah not every day but right it's it's okay to go you know what today it's too hard yeah yeah so the leaning in the leaning in is key and and so ideally in an ideal world that is what the weirdness and the discomfort in the yoga practice is training us for. And if we can't then translate that into things like, you know, topics like racism and, um, you know, any, any challenge or way that people are struggling in the world, like if we can't translate that, then we're not doing it right. (laughs) Like there's gotta be some crossover there. And if you do it, I love all this story of black bodies because there's this danger when we go, oh, yoga's physical and now I'm going to subtle and I'm going to be, you know, I, I love Christine Weber's subtle yoga. I'm not that, but it, if you go too subtle and you leave your body behind, which is not what she's saying at all, you use your body as a tool, as like a resonance tool, as a feeling tool. And that's very vulnerable. That's mm-hmm. part of it. If you just intellectualize it, it's like, oh, ideas. Oh, I think I understand that. Yeah, I got that. You don't get that. You don't get that till you feel that. And your body feels it. And I think the brain can tell you so many things. But if it's not, if it's not connected to the body and that feeling and that sense of safety, vulnerability, resonance, then we've left it behind. And so yoga develops that body as a tool to feel and it lets the connection between your brain and body develop, which is your vagal tone, so that you're not telling yourself stupid stories. You know, you can check in and you're like, actually, we're surviving and I feel safe and I feel connected. And I think that's such an important, important thing to go in with your white body, black body, transgender body, whatever body you're in, and be in a space and feel that. Mm-hmm. And particularly if you're in one of the dominant culture bodies, because we everyone's been keeping us safe for so long and you just nailed the mind-body connection right there you know Mm. that's often like this almost this trope that we use i don't think people understand it in yoga yeah what is the mind-body connection (laughs) what is mind-body health well you just talked about it i mean you just really laid it Mm. out there so for any yoga teacher anybody listening who's been wondering like what does this mean the mind-body connection that's what mm. it means. 
Right the work there. of Marlisa Sullivan, I mean, Chris Weber does a great job also with it, but Marlisa Sullivan, I think in her papers and her work, she's working on, I think it wrote a book called Yoga for Pain just recently, explains that really well and explains how yoga works both bottom up and top down. And so mm -hmm. that bottom up means, well, I think of it when you're really upset, you're, you're thinking and, and relating brain to work. So if I try and teach you something, you're not going to get it. So I need to give you something like a body thing, which is let's do a body scan or let's, you know, do some vinyasa flow so that you come into your body and use that as a skill so your mind can calm down. Whereas meditation is very top down or cognitive reframing is very top down. How can I see this as other? You know, how can I say, um, okay, I feel nervous, but I'm going to use this as an opportunity. If your body is going, no, I'm afraid, you're not going to be able to do that. You've actually got to soothe the body like a puppy. And I think once you start thinking of your body, I think of my body like a puppy, like an animal. Mm. And there's no talking to it. Like it, it won't, I just have to soothe it. And when I've soothed it, then my brain works again. Then I can think and I can relate and I can talk. And I have a whole bunch of methods in the freezer for soothing it. <laughs> and I pull those babies out. Nice. Yeah, so much good stuff. Well, thank you. We have some nice crossovers because of your work as, as a mentor and as a holder of this beautiful space with the Yoga Resource Group. I just think that idea of, of mentoring and of helping people who are, who are starting out and who are teaching, I think is such an important role to play. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for bringing your perspective and so much depth to this topic. It's been really a wonderful, fascinating discussion. If listeners are interested in finding out more about your course or finding mm. out more about you, where should they look? Uh, well, yogaforgrownups.com is the, is the thing. And my Instagram's yoga for grownups. So we talk about social media, but I, I post something useful every day. I'm, not every day, but a couple of times a week, which I try to be useful. And sometimes it's mental health or anatomy or aging. Yeah, that's where I am. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for having you me. You are at the beginning of your day. I am at the end of my day. I know. The sun, as you watch the sun rise onto my face, exactly, and you're at the end. Exactly. And I'm going to go swimming in the ocean, even if though it's winter, it's still beautiful. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, yeah. I was so engaged in the conversation. I actually, it, not until you mentioned it, that, oh, yeah, there it is. It's light there now. It is. Yeah, it is light. Because we started with my little dark face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. You hold a beautiful space. Thanks. Thank you, Maria. I hope you enjoyed listening in on that conversation as much as Maria and I enjoyed recording it. As I mentioned in the very beginning, it was a little longer. So in order to keep the overall length reasonable, I'm just going to keep this outro incredibly short and remind you that if you enjoy having these episodes be ad free, consider checking out the patron program at teachingyoga.net slash patron, where you can support ad free episodes for about the cost of a latte. As always, whatever else is going on in your life, please make sure to set aside time for your self-care and your personal practice. I know I say that every week, but I personally need to hear it myself probably every day. So I hope it helps you also. And I also hope you'll come back next week, same time, same place for another dose of knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. 